I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing. Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Into whatsoever houses I enter, I will enter to help the sick, and I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, especially from abusing the bodies of man or woman, bond or free. And whatsoever I shall see or hear, in the course of my profession, as well as outside my profession in my intercourse with men, if it be what should not be published abroad, I will never divulge, holding such things to be holy secrets. Now if I carry out this oath, and break it not, may I gain forever reputation among all men for my life and for my art. But if I break it and forswear myself, may the opposite befall me. What you just heard is part of the Hippocratic Oath. It was written in Ionic Greek, sometime between the 5th and 3rd centuries BCE, and it remains one of the most widely known ancient medical texts. As you can tell from the name, it is associated with the Greek doctor Hippocrates, but most modern scholars don't think he actually wrote it. It is an oath sworn by new physicians promising to uphold ethical standards in their treatment of patients. It is the oldest known statement about medical ethics in the Western world, and it is still the basis for some of the standards to which we hold doctors today. Taking a virgin of this oath is still a part of becoming a physician. And the reason we are interested in it is that sometimes, even when the best intentions are in play, this oath is broken. And when it is, the results can be disastrous. Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. dealing with psychopaths is messy. Even the diagnosis of psychopathy is complicated and has taken years to refine. If you're curious about this, check out our 14th episode, The Psychopathy Checklist. For all of history, psychopathic people have moved through society, some acting as a threat to others, but most simply living among us, displaying their differences in smaller, subtle ways. As the field of psychology has developed, so too has the interest in identifying those who may be dangerous to others, and, if possible, treating them to make them less so. This has been done to varying degrees of success and failure, mostly failure, and sometimes worse. Sometimes, the things that have been done to make psychopaths safer for the rest of us have actually made things more perilous. And this is where our story takes us today, at a special hospital in Canada known as Oak Ridge.
On the morning of February 21st, 1933, a brand new structure opened on the grounds of the Ontario Hospital in Penetanguishene. It was known as the Criminal Insane Building, or simply the New Building, although its official name would be Oak Ridge, and it was designed as a maximum security forensic mental health care unit for men. The first patients were all brought in from the psychiatric wing of the Guelph Reformatory. The beginning of the 1930s had brought massive unemployment and economic depression to the area, and many people had little to do during the day and little to distract them from the increasing stress of their daily lives, so the administers of the new building expected a big crowd to show up and watch the first 100 criminally insane men be loaded into the hospital. In the weeks before the opening, they wrote back and forth with officials from the province, planning road closures and extra police support. By the time the morning of February 21st arrived, however, a blizzard had set in. When the inmates arrived at 1 p.m. on a specially commissioned train, only one reporter and a few local boys, snowballs in hand, showed up to see them disembark, unshackled and dressed in ordinary clothes. And thus began the 81-year housing of the criminally insane at Oak Ridge. There were several programs implemented at this new facility, but the one that interests us today, and interests many people nearly 60 years after the fact, was known as the Oak Ridge Program. It was unique, and the research that came out of it is still examined and referenced today. Started in 1963 and running through 1977, the Oak Ridge program involved about half of the patient population. They were housed on the E, F, G, and H wards, and their life was modeled on what is known as a therapeutic community. In this model, a mental hospital is organized around giving the patients power. They help to direct their own treatment, and they have a say in the operations of the facility. They even set up their own rules and dole out punishments to those who break them. They're encouraged to share their thoughts and feelings throughout their day-to-day activities, and this is all part of the idea that therapy is ongoing and constant, not something that takes place at a particular time. The concept of the therapeutic community is traced back to the end of World War II, when the need to address the mental health of soldiers demanded a new approach to treatment. A British psychiatrist named Dr. Maxwell Jones was the main promoter of this new model, and it was eventually implemented in many mental hospitals and correctional facilities around the world. He believed, and many in the field agreed, that it was useful for people suffering from psychopathic personality disorders, and this is how it came to inform the doctors at Oak Ridge. Jones's work at the Henderson Hospital in the UK was the initial inspiration but the program went through four phases throughout the 1960s and 70s until it became something distinctly its own that drew the eyes of the world to the Ontario Hospital. The first phase aligned closely with Maxwell Jones's therapeutic community model. The superintendent at the time, Dr. Barry Boyd, kicked off the new structure by having the patients of each ward vote to elect a council of 12, which had a chairman and a vice chairman. These councils held bi-weekly meetings to go over the policies of the separate wards and make decisions about how to proceed with any issues. 
The hospital staff had final veto rights over any decision, but basically the ward council could make their own choices. This put power in the hands of the patients and gave them a sense of true responsibility. All the while, Boyd and his staff paid attention and made note of what happened. In a paper from the early 1960s, for example, Boyd noted the following. One ward council recently discussed the problem of dangerous weapons smuggled into the ward. After much argument, they passed a motion that if patients became aware of such a weapon, it was their duty to confiscate it or to report it to the staff. Another ward decided that patients should intervene only to save the life of a volunteer or a student nurse, but not the life of another patient or staff. The therapeutic community model was drastically different from treatment as usual. It was thought to change the institution from a place in which authority figures controlled everything that took place into an environment in which patients learned to practice the kind of decision-making and responsibility they would have to take on when they were released back into the world. As Boyd put it, quote, Most hopeful treatment lies in their exposure over time to a social environment which will change their self-picture, their values, and their attitudes towards responsibility. These changes had a huge impact on outcomes for the Oak Ridge patients. For the first time since the new building was erected in 1933, the indeterminate sentencing that many of them had been given was ended. New legislation dictated that they would be able to get out. And some of those men who had ridden in on that train three decades earlier were released. The therapeutic community model seemed to be helping them prepare and it had the added benefit of saving the province money. With the patients deciding their own regulations and essentially running constant therapy among themselves, less staff was needed. All of this meant that the program could continue to grow, which brought about the move to phase two. In September of 1965, building on the therapeutic community the Social Therapy Unit was founded. The STU, as it was called, would expand until it encompassed four of the eight wards in the Oak Ridge facility. The focus of the STU was communication. It was based on the idea that mental illness, especially personality disorders, came from an inability to communicate thoughts, both to the self and others. There were three factors that were thought to help counter this problem. The first, that verbal communication was required between the patients. The second was active involvement of the patients in the course of the treatment. And the third was total immersion in the program. This last will prove very important in what lies ahead. The patients in the four STU wards were mostly young men in their late teens and early 20s who had been placed in Oak Ridge on Lieutenant Governor warrants, a type of warrant used only when the accused person is deemed unfit to stand trial or found to have been insane during the commission of a crime. It's used only for serious offenses like homicide and sexual assault. For the patients at Oak Ridge, there was also some primary mental health issue usually a combination of a personality disorder, most often psychopathy, and schizophrenia. The men were fairly high-functioning, which was required for this kind of communication-oriented programming, but their primary diagnosis meant that treatment outcomes were bleak. Enter the star 
of today's episode, Dr. Elliot Barker. Dr. Barker arrived at Oak Ridge in 1965. He was fresh off a world tour of institutions taken with his wife, Julie, which included a stop at the Henderson Hospital to see Dr. Maxwell Jones's therapeutic community, as well as visits to such places as China's Central Peking Prison. He was recruited by Superintendent Boyd, and their joint vision became the backbone of the Social Therapy Unit's programming. Barker shared Boyd's vision for Oak Ridge, and together they began to build on the Ward Council model. They started with G Ward. They created an intensive schedule of psychotherapy sessions, which took place in the sunroom. Two or three patients at a time, dyads or triads, would assemble for these sessions, and there were upward of 80 to 100 hours of such programming each week. Patients could earn or lose privileges based on their participation in a token economy system they set up, and the ward councils continued. New patient committees were formed in order to deal with different aspects of the program, such as group assignment, punishment, and even medication. The plan was that patients would move through the STU from H ward to E ward, with most of the specialized treatment occurring during their time in G and F wards. Once the system was put in place, the program came into its own, and phase three of Oak Ridge got underway. About a year after Elliot Barker's arrival, things began to gel. The various parts of the program, group psychotherapy, committee, and council meetings, became required for everyone and these sessions encouraged a certain amount of conflict in order to get patients to engage more fully. Some sessions were mild or supportive, but many were aggressive and hostile. If a patient refused to contribute or attend, they were physically dragged to the room and not allowed to leave. The involuntary restraint didn't end there. If a patient showed any signs of self-harm or suicidality, they were handcuffed to another patient who was then made responsible for keeping them safe, and they had to continue being a part of the programming. The sessions and meetings took up more and more of the day until there was no recreational activity at all in the social therapy unit. The system of moving through the wards became more and more clear as the years passed. A new patient would enter on H ward, where they learned the vocabulary and psychological ideas of the STU program. In this ward, they were not allowed to speak to one another or to staff members, except when communication was scheduled. H ward also included a program called the Motivation, Attitude, and Participation Program, MAPP, which was basically a kind of punishment for anyone who didn't go along with the STU programming. In the MAPP program, a non-compliant patient would be forced to study and write papers about communication. If they were disruptive, they had to sit on a bare tile floor with their feet straight out in front of them and their hands either in handcuffs or in front of their bodies. They were allowed to move only four times during a four-hour discipline session, and they were not permitted to stand at all. If they broke any of these rules, they could be heavily sedated, restrained, or put in solitary confinement for days on end. 
From H ward, patients went on to G and F wards, where they were put through the therapeutic part of the program. These wards were set up to be a continuous therapeutic environment in which the patients constantly had to discuss, examine, and explain their behavior in psychosis, as well as the crimes they had committed in the past. Finally, patients would go to the E ward, where they prepared to be released to the outside world. They had the greatest amount of freedom on E ward, and they were even permitted to work in the vocational services area. All of this may sound fairly straightforward, if a bit strict, but we've now come to the part of the story where things get weird, and in the view of many, totally unethical. Starting in 1966, the doctors at Oak Ridge began to give the patients drugs. I'm not talking about psychopharmaceuticals or the expected basic psychiatric medications. I'm talking about hardcore, mind-altering substances. In March of that year, G-Ward patients started getting injections of sodium amytal, also known as truth serum. Now, sodium amytal, in addition to making people open up, also makes them tired. So these patients were also given methadrine, a stimulant, to keep them awake. Once these drugs had taken effect, the patients were interviewed by other patients, all part of Dr. Barker's treatment. A few months later, a substance called scopolamine was added to the roster. This drug causes confusion and lowers inhibitions, making it perfect for eliciting information, which was how it was used. Once again, the drugged patients were interviewed by their peers as part of their therapeutic sessions. The following year, in February 1967, the doctors stepped things up a notch. Patients on the G-Ward started being given lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD, more commonly known as acid. Now, acid had been used in other psychiatric experiments and was thought to be helpful in understanding the brains of people experiencing hallucinations, but Dr. Barker took it to a whole new level. That same year, in 1967, he made his last and most famous addition to the STU program, the Total Encounter Capsule. Created on F Ward, the Total Encounter Capsule was a specially designed 8 foot by 10 foot room with no windows and no stimulation or diversion of any kind. There were no books, no music, no television, and the only break in the padded walls was a one-way mirror that allowed the patients inside the capsule to be watched constantly. There were bright overhead lights that stayed on all day and all night, so anyone inside had no idea what time of day it was. There was an open toilet in the room and a wash basin, but no towels, and the only food was liquid given to the patients through straws in the walls. There were no beds or chairs, and the patients sat or slept on the floor. When you went into the capsule, you went with nothing. No clothes, no possessions, no distractions, and you stayed there, naked, with your fellow patients for weeks and weeks at a time. The first patients put in the capsule were there for upwards of four months, but this length of time was thankfully decreased as the experiment continued. In his paper, The Total Encounter Capsule, Dr. Barker described the room like this. 
The capsule is a specially constructed, soundproof, windowless, but continuously lighted and ventilated room, 8 feet by 10 feet, with a soft, rug-over foam floor, which provides the basic essentials, liquid food dispensers, washing, and toilet facilities, and in which it is possible for a group of up to seven patients to live for many days at a time, totally removed from contact with the outside. The capsule group is under constant observation, either through a one-way mirror in the ceiling and or by closed-circuit television and a high-quality audio amplifying system. Patient observers trained specifically for this full-time job work eight-hour shifts and have a wide variety of duties. They must keep a continuous supply of liquid foods, soups, milkshakes, tea, coffee, cocoa available to the group, regulate the temperature of the capsule to comfortable levels at all times, Record on videotape any interaction that is deemed significant enough to replay for the participants or staff. Keep continuous written record of events as they unfold, and intervene if it appears that physical acting out is imminent. It was decided, as the ground rules for the first groups were being drawn up, that the patients would participate in the capsule without clothes. This move was prompted by the experience of Paul Bindram, a psychologist working in California, who felt that uncovering of the private parts of one's body might facilitate the uncovering of the private parts of one's mind, and partly because of the fear that the clothing might be used in a dangerous manner. The idea behind the Total Encounter capsule was that having nothing to do, nothing to wear, and nothing to play with would force the patients to shed their inhibitions and share themselves fully and openly with the other people in the capsule and the people watching through the one-way mirror. By doing this, they would be completely broken down and stripped to their essential selves, only to be rebuilt in a better fashion. Remember, these were men who had been sent to Oak Ridge after committing heinous crimes, so the thought was that they could be forced, through this extreme treatment, to go in as bad and be reborn as good. It didn't end there, however. The mind-altering drugs were the cherry on top, and the patients got to decide who received them and when. These drugs were supposed to destroy a person's defense mechanisms, so they had to face the criminally insane part of their mental illness and truly examine themselves. The use of these drugs went on for years and years. Eventually, Dr. Barker left Oak Ridge but the use of hallucinogens on patients did not stop. He passed off the management of the social therapy unit to a psychiatrist named Dr. Gary Mayer, who not only kept up the experiments, but amped them up. He had a looser approach, and it was far less traditional than Elliot Barker. He wore his hair long, and he was known to walk around the STU barefoot. He was more lax about security and didn't seem concerned about the potentially dangerous population he was tasked with treating. The straw that broke the camel's back came in 1975 when Dr. Mayer led a mass psychedelic trip with 26 patients. Each of them was injected with acid in an effort to bring about a shared experience among the men and to take the treatment to a new level. But instead, the whole program wound up being shut down. Superintendent Boyd told Mayer to scale back the drugs, but he didn't listen, and he conducted one more mass session, this one with 12 patients. These tripping, criminally insane men were allowed to wander the halls of the ward, totally freaking out the attendant staff. Worried for their own safety, the attendants staged a coup 
and they locked the professional staff, Dr. Mayer included, out of the Oak Ridge building. Officials from Toronto were sent out to see what was happening up there, and when they learned the full scope of the situation, they closed the program and transferred Dr. Gary Mayer and his staff out of Penetanguishene. So, did these experiments work? As I've hinted repeatedly throughout this episode, not exactly. It depends on what you choose to focus on, however. The data that came out of Oak Ridge actually shows that patients who are not psychopaths benefited from some of the treatment. The violent recidivism rate for this population was significantly lower if they received care at Oak Ridge. Only 22% of these patients went on to commit violent acts versus 45% of those who were untreated. The concerning number, on the other hand, has to do with the psychopaths. The violent recidivism rate for psychopathic men on the ward went way up. The psychopaths at the facility who did not undergo Barker's treatment reoffended at a rate of 55%. Those who did go through the program, however, had a violent recidivism rate of 77%. That's right. Dr. Barker's treatment increased the likelihood of a psychopath harming another person by a full 22%. The theory behind this effect is that psychopaths do not respond well to being criticized and punished. Some of the key characteristics of psychopathy have to do with selfish behavior, and that certainly does not jive well with the community model set up at Oak Ridge. So, unsurprisingly, the psychopaths in the STU were the most likely to break the rules, the most likely to be punished, and the most likely to become more dangerous. The treatment of these patients in the social therapy unit led to a class action lawsuit. Filed in 2001, the charge stated that, quote, in the interest of research, doctors Boyd and Barker engaged in degrading and abusive human experimentation that could not be justified on medical or scientific grounds and that had severely deleterious effects on the patients at Oak Ridge. The doctors attempted to defend their protocols by arguing that force was necessary when dealing with such patients. In the full text of Oak Ridge Human Medical Experimentation Lawsuit, which is linked in our show notes, Dr. Barker is quoted as saying, If the process were one of eradicating a set of disapproved ideas and washing in different social values, then we would be committing offenses as grievous as those involved in setting up the Third Reich, indeed the more sinister because of their subtlety. On the other hand, if our patients did not choose to deviate from society's norms, but rather were driven to such deviations by internal, unresolved conflicts, then we should help them to resolve such conflicts by every means at our disposal, including force, humiliation, and deprivation, if necessary. Physical force brought the patient to our hospital. Physical force maintains him there. And this force will not be lifted until he changes his behavior in a recognizable way. In our opinion, there is no question that the treatment necessary to produce some remission of the illnesses suffered by most Oak Ridge patients would be impossible on a voluntary basis. Nevertheless, in 2017, an Ontario court ruled that Oak Ridge's programs were tantamount to torture. So, is there any successful treatment for psychopathy? 
I can't go into all the research today, but suffice it to say that we still don't know. There's some indication that targeting children and adolescents who have callous unemotional traits, which is considered the precursor to a diagnosis of psychopathy in adulthood, can lead to some improvement in their antisocial behavior, but it's not well understood whether this can actually prevent someone from growing up to be a full-fledged psychopath. On top of this question is the issue of correctly recognizing psychopathy in young people. We need a lot more research to clearly work out what works and what doesn't, because there are even studies that seem to show that therapy makes psychopaths more dangerous because it teaches them how to blend in better. This allows them to manipulate the people around them with greater skill. So overall, I have to leave you with the unsatisfying cliche that more research is needed. What I can say for certain is that taking a group of psychopaths, stripping them of all their clothes, injecting them with LSD, and locking them in a padded room does not lead to anything good. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter, who was also our guest star today. If you like what we do, please tell people about us any way you can. Follow us on social media at Psychologia Podcast, or visit our website for links to source materials and to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another scientific exploration of the strange and pathological.